If there were a hundred pianos, one hundred pianos, all tuned to the same tuning fork, are inherently then tuned to one another. Makes sense. Similarly, in order for there to be unity, there must be something out there that everybody is tuned to. And so for Christians, that tuning instrument is the Spirit of God. The only way to be unified is that everybody is led by and submissive to the Spirit of God. Everyone has to have a God perspective that governs their thinking and their living for there to be unity. We must all have a God perspective that then governs how we think and how we live. Oftentimes, we have a God perspective, but we don't allow that to govern how we think and how we live. And that's called rebellion, right? And so if we don't have a God perspective, that's the first thing we need to have. We need to gain a God perspective. Because if you don't have a God perspective, you have another kind of perspective. We just do. Some other perspective is going to dominate your thinking. If it's not a God perspective, what kind of perspective is it? Because that will govern your life. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13. That will be on the screen. Paul writes to the church at Corinth. He says, for even as the body, that's all of us in here, everybody from the 9 o'clock service, everybody from last night's service, for even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, were one, and so also is Christ as part and as head of the body. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. We were all made to drink of one spirit, to partake. We belong to the Spirit of God. The minute we commit our lives to Jesus Christ, He fills us with His Holy Spirit, and we are one in Christ. We are one. Let's read Ephesians chapter 4. We only have six verses. We have verses 1 through 6. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. We're going to read that, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to get after it. Okay? So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, Paul writes, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, church, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Hmm being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Almighty God, we bow our hearts before you, recognizing that we are in the presence of an almighty God that is worthy of our worship. But we recognize too, Lord, that you provide for us. You give your word to us, Lord, so that we can know how to walk faithfully for you and with you. And so for that, we thank you. We thank you for your mighty word. We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would have your way with us this morning as you mold us and shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. We are so grateful. We love you, Lord. And it's in the mighty name of Christ that we all pray and everyone said, amen. So let me give you the outline. So this is the outline. Verses 1, 2, and 3. We're going to talk about unity. Unity in verses 1, 2, and 3. And then in verses 4, 5, and 6, we see that unity played out in the Trinity with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Okay? Let's read verses 1, 2, and 3 again. Ephesians 
chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3. Therefore, Paul writes, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. And we must be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit of God in the bond of peace. So, Paul starts this section with this word that we've seen before. What's that word? The very first word in verse 1. Therefore. Remember I've said, anytime you see the word therefore, ask why it's therefore. What is it therefore? When you see the word therefore, it's because something came before it. Okay? If you recall, when we had the reading service for the book of Ephesians, is Michael in here? Michael Camarina? There's Michael, right? When we, when we did the reading service for the book of Ephesians, Michael did a great job. First, in giving an overview of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. And then secondly, Michael told us about the structure in which Paul wrote this book. And I don't know if you remember this. Michael drew our attention to the fact that Ephesians is composed of two parts. Do you remember that? The first part is chapters 1, 2, and 3. We just finished that. We're now in chapter 4. That first part, chapters 1, 2, and 3, is uh, theological. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 are practical. So we did the theological. Oh, we learn a bunch of stuff. But what do we do with that bunch of stuff that we learned? Amen? You follow? So theological, chapters 1, 2, and 3, and now the practical. In fact, Paul's letters, all of Paul's letters... How many are, uh, uh, letters of Paul's in the New Testament? Is it, is it 13? 13, I think. All of Paul's letters contain an exquisite balance between the theological and the practical. Every one of them. Other terms that you may recall when we covered that, theological and practical, we also use words like doctrine and, do you remember? Duty, right? So practical, or theological, practical. Doctrine and duty. Word and walk, or riches and responsibility. Those are just some other ways. That because of the riches we have in Christ, we have a responsibility for the riches that He's given us. Okay? Our lives, church, must exhibit. Our lives must exhibit a healthy balance between the two. Our lives must exhibit a healthy balance between God's Word and our walk for Him. They can't be out of balance. In studying... I, I don't know why I just think that I like to do this. I want to share with you like, there's things that I pray when I'm studying. And I just, so I wrote this down. I, I wrote this as I prayed while I was studying. Like, Almighty God, by the power of your spirit, we seek your help in being disciplined and committed to accomplishing both. We must do both. We must be committed to his doctrine and we must be committed to our duty. We must be committed to his work and be committed to walk, or his word, and be committed to walk according to that word. We must understand the, the riches that we have and the responsibilities that come along with those riches. We need His help to do that. Because, as we'll see here, it's what we're called to. It's not just a good idea. It's our calling, church. It's our calling. Imagine if we only focused on the theological. Lots of people do this. Lots. I've seen lots and talked to lots. Imagine if we only focused on the theological yet didn't practice what we preach. How fun is that? Right? Not real attractive, is it? When you meet people like that. 
If we only focused on the theological but didn't practice what we preach, we would be incredibly smart with zero credibility. Incredibly smart with zero credibility. Rendering the gospel either ineffective or at least unattractive to anybody in our way. If we only focused on the practical, but we're not grounded in God's Word, we would be incredibly devoted but run a high, high, high level of risk of being deceived. What do we base our devotion on if we're not in God's Word? It must be both. We must have a high level of doctrine and a high level of duty. Immersed in His Word and immersed in how we walk it out. It's imperative. When exploring the topic of unity, it takes place when the body of Christ is devoted to both doctrine and duty. Unity takes place when the church is devoted to both doctrine and duty. And so we see this unity talked about in verses 1, 2, and 3. And then we see it in the relationship of the Trinity in verses 4, 5, and 6. It's how our Lord operates, church. It's how our Lord operates. And so it's an outcome that He expects of us and equips us to. If, if it's how He operates. He expects us to operate in unity. And so then He equips us to do just that. Therefore, this is my therefore, therefore, having said all that, Paul can open up this section with the word therefore. It's why Paul can implore the Ephesians to walk in a worthy manner. It's why Paul can implore them to walk in a worthy manner. So if Paul's imploring them to walk in a worthy manner, what's the flip side of that? That we run the danger of walking in an unworthy manner. Can you imagine if we had to come through these doors and check a box? You know, our chalkboard over here, I walked in an unworthy manner all week. Oh, I'm over here, I walked in a worthy manner. If we're to walk in a worthy manner, that means we run the risk of walking in an unworthy manner. And how do we know the difference? See, look, a lack of doctrine, a lack of doctrine will ultimately result in walking in an unworthy manner. A lack of doctrine will ultimately result in walking in an unworthy manner. How would you know? If you don't know his doctrine, how do you do the right duty? So when Paul uses this word implore in verse 1, it's the Greek word parakaleo. It's the same root word for the Holy Spirit. It means to exhort. Paul's exhorting them like the Holy Spirit would. To earnestly support or encourage a response or an action. The Holy Spirit comes alongside us just like Paul is imploring them to exhort us, to support and encourage us to respond and to act appropriately according to doctrine. So, this being God's doctrine, this being our doctrine of our duty, if that doesn't represent our lives, what doctrine does? What doctrine do you live your life by? We're all living our life by some kind of a doctrine. All of us are. Don't think for a moment, church, don't think for a moment that other doctrines are not competing for how you live your life with God. The enemy is competing with how he wants us to live differently than for our Lord. 
Don't think for a moment that other doctrines don't compete. Check this out. Turn to your right, almost to the book of Revelation. You have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, then Jude, then Revelation. So you can go to Revelation and work your way back if you want. But go to 1st John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. We must be so careful, church, not to allow other doctrines to overtake us. Because it will happen if we're not in God's Word. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5, 6, and 7. This is the message that we have heard from Him. And we announce to you, God is light. And in God, there's no darkness at all. At all. Zero. If we say that we have fellowship with Him... And yet we walk in any form of darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk, walk means live. If we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, then we have unity. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. Amen? We must not be walking in darkness. We must be very careful. Joshua said the same thing way back in the Old Testament. Check this out. Very similar. Joshua said this in chapter 22, verse 5. Do we have that verse up there? Joshua 22, 5. Thank you. He says to the Israelites, God's people, he says, be careful. Be careful. Be careful. Be very careful to observe, to walk. To observe the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. To love the Lord your God and to walk in some of His ways? No. In all of His ways. And to keep His commandments and hold fast to Him. Hold on and serve Him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. We must be careful. So often we're just not careful. Let's take this one step further. Check this out. Paul doesn't just, he doesn't just implore, going back to Ephesians 4, he doesn't just implore us, which is that expectation for action, right? He doesn't just implore us to walk in a worthy manner. He doesn't stop there, which would keep us from walking in an unworthy manner. Like that would be a good enough encouragement, right? Walk in a worthy manner so that you don't walk in an unworthy manner, period. He doesn't do that. He says more. (laughs) I, the prisoner, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. It's not just that we're to walk in a worthy manner so that we don't walk in an unworthy manner. It's our calling. It's, it's It's what we are called to. God, what are you calling me to do? I'm calling you to walk in a worthy manner according to the calling with which you have been called. I don't know what to do with my life. Walk in a worthy manner. What should I do for a career? Walk in a worthy manner. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. We're all called to that. Not not just me. Not just certain of us at certain ages or certain life stages. The minute we commit our lives to Jesus Christ, each and every one of us is called to live and to walk in a worthy manner. Amen? And so our calling is to walk worthily. And that can't be done without doctrine. Our call is to walk worthily. And we can't do that without doctrine. 
This word worthy in verse 1 of chapter 4, it's a Greek word axios, A-X-I-O-S. It means equal weight. One's calling and conduct must be in balance. Must be. That's what Paul's saying. Make sure that you're calling, what you're called to, the doctrine and your conduct are worthy that they're in balance. And that conduct includes both our personal life as well as the responsibility that we have to others in the church. And sometimes that's just lacking. We work on our personal walk with God and we forget about our responsibility to the body of Christ. And so we're not walking in a worthy manner. One commentary says this, it says the the Christian life is not based on ignorance but on knowledge. And the better we understand Bible doctrine, the easier it is to obey Bible duties. What you believe determines how you behave. What you believe determines how you behave. What we believe determines how we behave. Turn to Romans chapter 12. Uh, It'll be to your left. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, they're parallel verses to uh, to Ephesians 4, verses 1, 2, and 3. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. He opens the same way he opens Ephesians 4. You see that? It says, therefore. Therefore, and he uses the same word, I urge. It's the same Greek word as what he says, implore. And we use the word implore in Ephesians uh, chapter 4. And, and, And we use it, urge. It's the same Greek word. Therefore, Paul writes, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, be careful who you present yourselves to. He says, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship to Him because of what He's done for us on the cross. Look at verse 2. And don't be conformed to this world anymore. Stop. But be transformed. How? By what does it say? By the renewing of your mind. God transforms our lives because of the doctrine that He invests in us. Hey, look. To the the degree that I'm not all that polished and I'm a little bit of a train wreck now, I was a lot worse. I was a train wreck, right? And so in any sense uh, that I have anything together now, it was just not good back then. God has has and is still transforming my life as I continue to allow His Word to do that. Because He says He wants to transform us by renewing our mind. And then when He does that, it says, so that. That's an equal sign. When He renews your mind, so that you may prove, your life proves what God's will is. You're going to do His will. And it's going to be good and acceptable and perfect. Wow. That's how important doctrine is. Hey, look, if your life's been transformed, just slip up your hand. Has your life been transformed by doctrine? Gosh, right? Some of you have been more transformed than others. I know that for sure. (laughs) And God's still doing that. Transformation is a long process. We can change some things really, really quickly, but transformation is is a, a long process. And so He transforms us 
by the renewing of our mind as we get involved in His doctrine. All right. So a key word, a key word in these last three chapters, four, five, and six of Ephesians, a key word in these last three chapters is the word walk. Walk means live. How are we walking? How are we living? We see it here in verse 1 of Ephesians 4, which we just read. Walk in a worthy manner. You'll see it also in verse 17 of chapter 4. Check it out. Verse 17. So this I say, and I affirm with the Lord that you walk no longer as you used to in the futility of your mind. Don't do that anymore. You're called to a different walk. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. We are to walk in love because we're Christians just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us. We're to walk the same way. An offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Has anybody referred to you as a fragrant aroma? <laughs> That's kind of, I can, I can go all kinds of places with that. And I'm feeling particularly feisty. I might just go there. I'm not going to go there. We are to be a fragrant aroma. Our lives should be sweet to people. Huh. So that was what? Where was I just at? Verse 2? Look at verse 8 of chapter 5. Verse 8. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light. Walk as children of light. That's God's Word. It's His doctrine. Look at verse 15, also in chapter 5. Therefore, be careful. The same thing Joshua said. Be careful how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Church, listen. If we're not careful in how we walk, it's just that, the, that the, those tiny things sometimes, those tiny moments where we let our guard down and sometimes we make some poor decisions that can impact the rest of our lives negatively. If we're not careful, we must be careful. My wife and I, our anniversary will be in about 10 days. It'll be our 29th anniversary. So we met about 30 years ago. I can't believe it's been this long. It's crazy. But we met about 30 years ago in a church plant uh, on our college campus. And Dieter, Dieter Zander, very German name, was uh, the pastor and without fail, without fail, when he saw you, he would say hi, and then he would say, Susan, tell me about your walk. Hi, Pastor Dieter. Hi, Susan. Tell me about your walk. Brad, tell me about your walk. He knew we were in Bible study. He knew we were coming to church. He knew we were doing this and doing that. But ultimately, it needs to be played out in how we're walking our lives, right? How are we walking? Every time, tell me about your walk. I wondered if I asked that question, if I had the opportunity to do that every time you showed up on Sunday, would that prevent you from wanting to be here or would that encourage you to show up? I'm not sure. I ain't going to church, man. Pastor Mark's going to ask me about my walk and I don't want to talk about that. Like, it's so mean of him. Every time, every time Dieter would ask, how's your walk? He would say, tell me about your walk. It's a great question, isn't it? Shouldn't we be doing that to one another? Tell me about your walk. What are we here for, right? On some level, why? I'll never forget that. And so I went to church prepared, man. I did. I'm, I'm going to nail it this week, man. I'm going to be as Christ-like as I've ever been. 
Tell me about your walk. Three things from that comment or that question that he would ask. We all have a walk. That's the first comment. All of us. We all have a walk. Each and every one of you have a walk. The second thing is, we're to walk that walk in a worthy manner. We're all to walk in a worthy manner. Because if we're not, then we're walking in an unworthy manner. Lord, help us. And the third thing is, is that we walk in a worthy manner when we, listen, three things, comprehend and calibrate according to our calling. We walk in a worthy manner when we comprehend and calibrate. Comprehend, doctrine, calibrate, live, walk according to how we are called. This isn't just good informational stuff. This is your calling. This is your calling. It's not my responsibility. It's your responsibility. This is how we are are called. We're to walk in a worthy manner, and we do that when we comprehend and calibrate according to our calling. Here's another question. I love this from our verses. Who, Paul says in Ephesians 4 that he implores them, right? I implore you. Who are your implorers? Paul's imploring somebody. He's imploring the Ephesians. Who are your implorers? Look at verse 1. Let's rework verse 1 a little bit. Verse 1, he says, I'm going to leave some words out. Paul could have very easily in verse 1 said, therefore, because of what I just said in chapters 1, chapters 2, and chapters 3, Paul could have just said, therefore, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. He could have said that, right? And that would have been just fine. Therefore, everything I just shared with you, chapters 1, 2, and 3, therefore, walk in a manner worthy. But he adds, I... Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk. He adds that. I think that's interesting. And so it bears repeating, who are your implorers? Paul had the ability. He lived his life in such a way where he could implore others. Who do you have in your life that is imploring you and keeping the balance between doctrine and duty, word and walk? Who is the Dieter Zander in your life that says, tell me about your walk? I think that's why Paul puts that in there. He's saying, hey, man, look, I'm in a position where I can implore you to walk in a worthy manner. Some of us, the takeaway is two things. Some of us simply need a Paul in our lives. Some of us just quite simply need a Paul in our lives to implore us to walk in a worthy manner. And so, it's interesting. We don't, I don't, we don't plan announcements and how it all fits together, but I think it's interesting that I'd be talking about this while Pastor Rob's talking about being in a small group. And so perhaps that's God saying, hey, look, you need an implorer in your life. You need to be in a community group so that somebody can come alongside and implore you to walk in a worthy manner. Amen? So some of, some of us simply need a Paul in our life. I don't know if you guys know Pete Kimberly. Pete helps out in the kitchen. A couple of weeks ago, Pete essentially said, I need somebody to implore me to walk in a worthy manner. And so I've met with Pete a couple times. He was here at the 9 a.m. service. I asked his permission if I can share that. He said that was fine. I asked him afterwards, but it, 
<laughs> anyway. And that's what he's doing. He says, I need somebody to implore me to walk in a worthy manner. And so, and I can't do that with everybody, but I can do it with a few. And so for some of us, we simply need a Paul in our life. Join a group. Be part of a group. But to others of us, we may simply need to be a Paul in somebody's life. To implore them to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. And so maybe God's challenging you to open up your home to facilitate a group so that you can implore others. Because that's this whole thing called discipleship-making process where go and make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And it's been happening for years. Who are your implorers? Who are you imploring to walk in a worthy manner? So, after three chapters of doctrine, the first topic of conversation starting in chapter 4, is unity. After three chapters of doctrine, the very first thing he wants to talk about is unity. Huh. Look at verse 3. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Church, we are called to unity. We're called to unity. We are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. We are to walk in unity. But here's what's interesting. I don't know if you've read that verse carefully. Did you know that we don't produce unity? We don't produce unity. What does verse 3 tell us? Being diligent to what? Preserve the unity. God provided the unity for us. It is our responsibility to preserve this unity. He produced it. We preserve it. The moment we submit to the Lordship of Christ, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And as verse 4 shows us, there's only one body of Christ and one Spirit that fills the body of Christ. And so we're instantly unified in Christ. And then the enemy gets to work because the enemy hates our unity. It takes, if you know anything about museum stuff, which I'm not a museum guy, but when I go and I get my wife and kids drag me in, you know, they have stuff that needs to be preserved. And the process of keeping things of value preserved, it's a lot of energy expended to preserve something. It just takes a lot of work. I don't know if you've, I, I, don't, even, I don't even know the detail, but the things that they do for, I think, the Declaration of Independence in D.C., the, they spare no expenses to keep this preserved. It just takes a lot of work to keep that thing of value preserved. And so God, with this thing that he values, this unity that he created, he's asking us to preserve it. And so again, we don't produce it, we preserve it. Think about this. That word preserve is tereo, T-E-R-E-O. It means, it means to keep, to guard, to protect, and to keep doing that, to keep on. So it's not a moment, it's not a season, it's forever. We are called to preserve the unity in the church forever. What's the opposite of preserve? If we don't preserve something, what happens to it? It decays. And so God, because of the bloodshed on the cross for you and I, produces unity. And if we don't preserve it, it decays. And that must grieve the heart of God when there's not unity in His church. It's got to grieve the heart of God, the very thing that He provided for us. And we allow it to decay. And so I just want to take a moment to encourage all of us here 
as a church family, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to consider, just consider how we can be a bit more careful, maybe a lot more careful for some of us, but a bit more careful in regards to language and actions that create disunity. May we be a bit, a bit more careful in regards to our language and our actions that create disunity. Verse 2 shows us the actions that it will take to preserve unity. Look at verse 2. Here's what it's going to take. (laughs) We don't like these words, right? They're hard. Humility. Gentleness. Patience. What's the truer definition of patience? Long-suffering. And tolerance. Humility, gentleness, long-suffering, and tolerance. And those four things are wrapped up in what we call love at the end of verse 2. Humility, gentleness, long-suffering, and tolerance. Hmm. One way to think of humility is just putting others first. And so our truest act of humility is, maybe you've heard this, and if, if you have, forgive me, but joy, right? You put Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. And that's what it really means to walk humbly, is to put Jesus first, others second, and then yourself last. This, this idea of tolerance, right? I mean, we can't walk in unity, in unity unless we're humble, unless we're gentle, unless we're long-suffering. And I just think this, this last one, this tolerance is... <laughs> I'm going to pick on you, Dave, because it's just easy, because Dave knows I love him. So if you say, hey, Pastor Mark, do you like that Dave guy? <laughs> oh, no, I tolerate him. <laughs> I'd be totally biblical. Hey, look, those four words, I don't tolerate Dave. I love Dave a lot. He's easy to love. Well, he's getting easier to love. <laughs> I'm working on you. I'm, I'm imploring him to walk in a worthy manner. It's starting, to, it's starting to take root. You're doing okay. I'm just being silly. Listen, think of these words. Humility, gentleness, long-suffering, and tolerating, or being tolerant. That's Christ towards us. That's God towards us. God tolerates a lot from us. And He does it out of His love for us. My wife tolerates me. Come on, man, are you kidding me? And I tolerate her. It's just a lot easier. What can I say? She does. So tolerating one another is fine. It's completely fine because that keeps the unity that we are to diligently preserve. Mm. So humility is listed first, which we noticed in verse 2. It's listed first. And the reason it's listed first is because it's the virtue that promotes unity. Humility is the virtue that promotes unity, whereas pride promotes what? Disunity. It's just going to happen. If humility produces unity then pride will uh, will promote disunity. Right? So, what part of pride is God most blessed with in your life? Is He blessed with your pride at all? No. What does He need to do with whatever amount of pride exists in your life? What does He need to do with that? What's that? Get it out. Is that what you said? That's right. That's absolutely right. And so... Pride stuff comes up and God's like, okay, got to get to work. And it gets pushed out and more pride stuff comes in. He's got to get it out. And then, then we die. <laughs> We're just so broken, man. Right? And so we have all this pride and God's just constantly working that pride out of our lives. Because 
He has called us to preserve the unity of the church. And pride has no place in that. So that's the actions. Look at our attitude in verse 3. So the actions are found in verse 2, and the attitude is verse 3. We must be diligent. That's our attitude. So we have the actions of humility and gentleness and patience and tolerance. And we have to do so with diligence. We must be diligent. We must be diligent. Quite frankly, I don't think the church has been great in this regard. We do it for a while, but we don't do it for forever. Diligent means to never stop. Church, we're called. We're called to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, and we're called to do it with diligence. The spiritual unity of a home, the spiritual unity of of a small group, the spiritual unity of of a Sunday school class or of a church is the responsibility of each person involved. It's not my responsibility. It's all of our responsibility. And the responsibility for that job never ends. That's what diligently means. It'll never stop. So, I'd love to know, are you a card-carrying member of unity. Are you about church unity? Oh yeah, man, let me show you my card, man. I'm totally about unity. I signed up. It's kind of silly, but it's fun. Are you a card-carrying member of church unity? Good question for us. We must not let our differences drive us. Instead, we must allow our doctrine to drive us. Not our differences, our doctrine. Amen? We must be diligent, church. Because if we're not diligent to preserve, then if we don't preserve, what sets in? Decay. If we're not diligent in the things of the Lord, decay will set in. Does diligent describe you? Would people say you're diligent in the things of the Lord? There's a lot of things I'm not. There's just a lot of things I'm not. I don't have a strong skill set. But I am telling you, I am a diligent dude. I am. I just am. Is Pastor Mark diligent? Yes, he is. I am diligent. Because if I'm not diligent, I'll decay. And we see that happen in the church all the time. I don't even know the status. Like one-third of the U.S. population is Christians that don't go to church. It's because they weren't diligent and they're decaying and they're sitting in their homes and they're not part of the body of Christ and they're decaying. And they're bitter and they're angry at God and the church or whatever because they weren't diligent in the things of the Lord. And lastly, we're just going to move through these last three verses and I've got about two minutes. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. We see the Holy Spirit in verse 4 where it says there is one body and one spirit. We see Jesus Christ in verse 5, one Lord, that's Christ. And then we see our Heavenly Father in verse 6. So He talks about unity and then He displays it to us in verses 4, 5, and 6. And then he mentions in these three verses what I like to call the Magnificent Seven. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God. The one body is the universal church. It's all the believers. The one spirit is the Holy Spirit who indwells that church. The one hope is the confident hope that we have in our future with God. The one Lord refers to Christ, the head of the church. And it's difficult to believe that two believers can claim to obey the same Lord and yet not be able to walk together in unity. How does that work? Listen. You guys ever heard of Gandhi? 
Someone once asked Gandhi, what's the greatest hindrance to Christianity in India? You know what his reply was? Christians. The fifth one, one faith. That's the, this body of truth that we have. This, this body of truth that was deposited by Christ into His church. One baptism is how we identify with Christ through His death and resurrection. And then lastly, one God and Father. We are children in the same family, loving and serving the same Father, so we ought to be able to walk together in unity. Amen? Alright. Worship team, are they? Yes, okay, you guys are sitting. Awesome. I'm going to invite them up and I'm going to pray. And when I'm done praying and, and then they close us in a, a, a final song, if you need prayer, our prayer team is available. It's so good to be with you guys. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your diligence. God loves you so very, very much. Let's pray. Almighty God, You've done so much for us. We hope and pray by the power of Your Spirit to walk in a worthy manner because it's what You've called us to. We don't want to walk in an unworthy manner. We thank You for Your Word that shows us what that looks like. We thank You for the Pauls that implore us. We thank You for those of us in this room that are being Pauls to implore others. Help there to be a healthy balance, Lord, between Your Word and our walk. We love You and we thank You in the mighty name of Christ. Amen.